This is Southern Arch Heretic, Shifting the Burden, continuing with the proof and discussing the Christological-slash-Biblical argument. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series, where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting, and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non-believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. We started with the Christological argument, but got sidetracked with some objections in the last episode. So let's get back to it. The Christological Argument, Take 2. Now back to the Christological Argument. In order to functionally present this argument, I will be referring to the Bible and the New Testament in particular for material. I've already expressed my opinion that Scripture would and should be found inadmissible at trial to prove its truth, and so later I'll be asking you to ignore it, but... I also told you that I'd address this argument and the biblical argument, which is essentially the same thing. I'll also be reminding you that the judge most likely would admonish you that you are not allowed to consider the Bible or Scripture when it comes down to deliberations. However, historians, archaeologists, linguists, anthropologists, etc. must use what is available, even if legally unreliable in order to try and piece together our human past and coherently attempt to describe it. Therefore, the story and any argument I want to address in this exercise would appear incomplete and possibly confusing without reference to the very evidence that should be ignored when deliberating whether or not the existence of God or the divinity of Jesus has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. In other words, This is not legally reliable evidence, but we're going to discuss it anyway. It's safe to say that most historians question the physical existence of many of the characters and heroes that populate non-biblical ancient accounts. These writings, by the way, are created by equally ancient civilizations, and some of those civilizations were inarguably far more advanced than those responsible for the writings collected in the holy books of the three major monotheistic religions. The big three monotheistic religions' holy books aren't even in the same league as some of these other writings. The tone, the narrative, the story arc, and the details included in those other texts are simply more interesting and advanced. I'm aware that there are those who will make the argument that I'm naturally unable to truly understand certain passages in holy books or sometimes the entire holy book without reading or hearing them in the original language. This suggestion is more times than not made by a Muslim regarding the Quran as Allah's unerring revealed word. Allah's word was allegedly dictated to Muhammad 
an illiterate merchant warlord on the western side of the Arabian Peninsula. Starting one night during the month of Ramadan in 610 AD, in the cave of Hira, by the angel Gabriel, in Arabic, and intended to be sung. All the while, the same individuals that claim I can never truly understand the text seem to accept and adopt many of the stories from the Bible as revealed scripture. This, at the very least, suggests that at different times in history, God was a selective and even melodic monoglot. Or maybe it was Gabriel's personal artistic choice, indicative of his bold interpretation of Allah's bone-dry script, that resulted in the transcendent melody created for the cave performance. The world may never know. I know I won't, at least not anytime soon. I can't understand Arabic when spoken or sung, nor do I possess the capability to read any of these texts in their original languages because I am illiterate. Can't read or write them as it relates to those languages, i.e. Greek, Latin, Aramaic, Hebrew, or Arabic. But then again, so was Muhammad, Jesus, and most of Jesus' 12 apostles. I won't let that deter me, though. I'm putting in my best effort and trying to gain a rudimentary understanding of these languages so that maybe in the future I'll possess deeper insight. Until that time, I must rely on translations, as I presume most folks do. Sorry. I got lost in another tangential thought, this time about Muslims, Muhammad, Jesus, and literacy. I'll try to focus. Christological argument takes many forms, but generally deals with the divinity of Jesus, the resurrection and miracles, and the wisdom of Jesus. You will often hear Christian apologists state openly that biblical scholars and historians agree about the facts of the resurrection. This is called the minimal facts approach. It's exactly what it sounds like, because the argument is based on the premise that the Bible specifically the New Testament, is the historical record of Jesus Christ, Son of God. It must. There are no other records. It sometimes relies upon the Old Testament scriptures as well to make the case that Jesus fulfilled prophecies related to the Jewish Messiah. Of course, there were many who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, especially during the time in which Jesus supposedly preached. There is also absolutely no connection between the Jewish Messiah and divinity. That is purely a Christian construct. No practicing Jew in the first century would have understood the Jewish Messiah to be divine, much less Yahweh's bastard child who was also himself.
The general principle of the Christological argument can be stated as follows. If the Bible is correct, then Jesus must be God. There is evidence that the Bible is correct. Therefore, Jesus is God. There are variants that address specific events in the New Testament, and I'd like to explore some of those. One argument, as stated earlier, is that if it can be proven that Jesus rose from the dead, then that would prove that he is the Son of God or divine, and therefore God exists. Since the quote-unquote evidence is in the New Testament and nowhere else, let's peruse it and see whether it is even remotely consistent or reliable. It can't be authenticated, so we know it's not, but let's review it anyway. The Christological Argument the Resurrection of Jesus. It's most appropriate to start with the Gospels the Church decided to include in the New Testament. There were many others floating around by the time Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John became Christian canon. But we will explore the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, first to determine whether or not they are persuasive as to the historicity of the claims regarding Jesus. For the sake of organization and order of importance, let's delve into the resurrection. It really is the bread and wine of the divinity claim, even though there are arguments related to Jesus' alleged personal claims of divinity as well as his alleged wisdom. We'll address those as well. But first, what do the three synoptic gospels and John have to say about the resurrection of Jesus. The first thing to note is that the story of the resurrection of Jesus is in all four of the New Testament Gospels. I've heard this mentioned as some sort of confirmation of its truth, but remember, there were other Gospels. The Church chose these four Gospels for a reason, and since the whole rising from the dead thing was so important to their shtick, It only seems logical that the church would choose four that have resurrection stories. If I were challenging the credibility or reliability of a witness, or a document like a letter or note or even an event, I would look for consistencies and inconsistencies. Inconsistencies become very important when challenging the truth of specific facts. By the way, Surely an all-powerful and all-knowing God wouldn't divinely inspire, reveal, conflicting or inconsistent stories to his or his kids' biographers. But then again, he does appear to exhibit just that sort of cheek. Why not totally confuse the humans for a laugh, right? What are some of the inconsistencies in the four resurrection stories? Who were the first to the tomb and what exactly happened after they got there? 
First arriving in the Gospel of Matthew are two women, Mary Magdalene and, quote, the other Mary, unquote, who went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, and an angel came down from heaven dressed in white and appearing like lightning. He rolled the stone back and scared the crap out of the guards, who instantly became like dead men. The angel told the two women to go inform the disciples. Jesus intercepted the two women and instructed them further. The women clasped Jesus' feet and worshipped him. The soldiers returned to the chief priests to report what happened. The chief priest paid off the soldiers to keep their cheese holes shut and instructed them to instead start a rumor that the apostles stole the body. Jesus chose a hill in Galilee and appeared to the disciples to give them instructions. Matthew's gospel ends with that. There's nothing about Jesus' ascension into heaven. In the gospel of Mark, the first to the tomb are Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, which I suppose could be the other Mary in Matthew, and Salome. These three women, three, went to the tomb with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They openly wonder who will roll away the stone because it's so big. When they first arrive, they find the tomb already opened and a young man clothed in white sitting inside the tomb. He tells them that Jesus has risen from the dead and to go tell the disciples. The women leave and never tell anyone due to their fear. In this gospel, there's an extra woman. The stone is already rolled away. There are no guards, no lightning angel, and Jesus doesn't appear to the women. Later in the gospel, Jesus appears to his disciples when they're eating and gives them instructions prior to ascending into heaven. There's nothing about a hill in Galilee. The instructions he gives to the dining apostles are only in Mark's gospel and are the basis for the snake handling and other speaking in tongues churches, of which I'm sure you've heard. In Mark chapter 16, verses 17 through 18, it stated, or I'm sorry, it states that Jesus instructed his disciples, quote, Believers will be given the power to perform miracles. They will drive out demons in my name. They will speak in strange tongues. If they pick up snakes or drink any poison, they will not be harmed. They will place their hands on sick people, and these will get well. Certain Christian congregations in parts of southern Appalachia have taken this particular piece of scripture to heart. In these churches, you will find people drinking poison, handling venomous snakes, laying on hands and babbling incoherently in what can only be described as gibberish. It's not like God suddenly gifts these people with the ability to speak an actual language foreign to them. It's just nonsense. I'd say there are some clear inconsistencies so far. Let's keep going. We still have Luke and John to inspect. The Gospel of Luke has the first arriving at the tomb as Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. These women also were bringing spices and found the tomb already open. When they entered, they saw that the body was gone and stood there puzzled. Two men in bright shining clothes appeared to them 
and told them that Jesus had risen from the dead and to inform the apostles. The apostles did not believe the women, and so Peter immediately ran to find the empty tomb. Jesus then appeared to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus and disappeared after breaking bread with them. He appeared to his disciples and let them touch him and see that he was physically there. He also ate a piece of fish, I guess for further proof of his physical being. Jesus led the apostles out of the city and ascended into heaven. Now, in this gospel, we have a different woman and Peter going to the tomb with Mary Magdalene. We have two shiny fellas talking to the women. We have an additional appearance of the risen Jesus to two followers on the road to Emmaus. We have Jesus eating fish and being physically touched by the apostles. He ascends into heaven, but there are still different details. I don't know. It seems like even the folks in the first and second centuries AD couldn't agree on what happened with any consistency at least not according to these Gospels. What about John? In the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and found the stone rolled away. She ran back and fetched Peter, as well as the disciple Jesus loved, and they all three raced to the tomb. They found Jesus' burial garment and face wrap folded up separately, They all believed that his body had been stolen. Peter and the other apostle returned home. Mary stayed behind crying and noticed two angels sitting where Jesus' body once was, and they asked her why she was blubbering. She turned around and saw Jesus standing in front of her but didn't recognize him and instead believed him to be the gardener. How different did he look? After Jesus spoke to her, Mary recognized him, but Jesus instructed her not to touch him. Jesus appeared to his disciples even though they were hiding behind locked doors. Good old doubting Thomas wasn't there, so he claimed bullshit, said he wouldn't believe it until he could put his fingers in the nail holes and his hand in Jesus' side wound. Jesus appeared again when the apostles were behind locked doors, just to tell Thomas where he could stick his fingers and hands. I don't think I need to list the differences in this one. How can a reasonably sane person read these stories that contain disparate and contradictory facts and think to themselves, hmm, you know, must be true. My question is, which one? Can't be all of them. The Witness The master of the garden said, Who, now the earth seems cold and dead, Will by his fearless witnessing Hold men's hearts for the tardy spring? Not yet I am but half awake, All drowsily the primrose spake, And fast the sleeping daffodils Had folded up their golden frills. Indeed, the frail anemone said softly, "'Tis too cold for me." Wood hyacinths, all deeply set, replied, "'No ice is melted yet,' when suddenly, with smile so bright, up sprang a winter aconite, and to the master joyfully she cried, 
I will the witness be. Faye Inchfawn, 1906. Remember when I mentioned the pass the secret game in the last episode? I'm borrowing this analogy, even if I'm using it a bit differently, uh, from Dr. Richard Dawkins, whom I admire greatly. How different was the story after it passed through a few whisperers? These incompatible and seemingly fundamental differences occur even though most New Testament scholars would agree that the writer of Luke and the writer of Matthew used Mark, the earliest of the texts, and another presumed lost text known as Q, for source material. Still, even with that, there are so many differences and inconsistencies. I know that believers tend to view these conflicting facts as unimportant, but I can't understand how the writings can still be viewed as divinely revealed. Again, why would an all-powerful and all-knowing editor allow for such nonsense? John is something altogether different. There is a clear emphasis on Jesus as the logos, the, the word or reason behind the universe in the writing, and the details are amazing considering it was also anonymously written many years after the fact, just like the other Gospels. It's almost like they were just making this shit up as they went along, with some references to some other stories floating around at the time. I've mentioned other Gospels. I forget sometimes that some of you may not realize that there were many other Gospels and writings circulating among the different Christian congregations or sects in the early years of the developing Christian faith. Since we've been discussing the resurrection story, it may be helpful to review one of the other Gospels in circulation during the early years of Christianity. I'll turn to one that addresses the resurrection the Gospel of Peter. We know this Gospel was used by Bishop Serapion of Antioch in Syria as early as 175 AD. We only have fragments of this Gospel, but a portion related to the resurrection exists. It contains some details from the canonical Gospels, as well as some that are not included in the New Testament. I was lucky enough to take a class at the University of Tennessee taught by Professor David L. Dungan. He and Professor David R. Cartledge are responsible for a book that I frequently use as a reference, especially when addressing writings outside of the accepted New Testament documents. It's called Documents for the Study of the Gospels, and it's an invaluable resource when it comes to translations and quick references to additional Christian Gospels and stories as well as other writings reflecting the views towards saviors and gods in the Mediterranean area during the first few centuries A.D. I use the translations in their book for the Gospel of Peter, as well as some other writings that I, I refer to on occasion. What stands out in the Gospel of Peter is the size of the group that allegedly witnessed the dazzling resurrection miracle. After the crucifixion and burial, 
Peter has the scribes and Pharisees begging Pontius Pilate to have the tomb guarded for three days so that Jesus' followers would be unable to steal the body. This gospel states that Petronius the centurion was provided to them by Pilate along with other soldiers. They all, the, the centurion, soldiers, and priests, went out to the tomb and rolled a giant stone across the entrance. They put seven seals on it, pitched a tent there, and set watch. It continues as follows. But in the night before the dawn of the Lord's day, while the soldiers stood watch two at a time, there came a great sound from heaven. And they saw the heavens open, and two men, who had great splendor, come down from there and draw near to the tomb. The stone which was set over the door rolled away by itself and moved to the side. The tomb was opened, and both the young men went in. When the soldiers who were there saw this, they awakened the centurion and the elders. They were there also keeping watch. While they narrated what they had seen, they then saw three men exit the tomb. Two supported the one, and a cross followed them. The heads of the two reached up to heaven, but the one whom they supported with their hands stretched beyond the heavens, and they heard a voice from the heavens which said, Have you preached to those who are asleep? And they heard an answer from the cross, Yes. Okay, so according to this gospel, many people witnessed some or all of the miraculous happenings at that tomb, including priests, Petronius the centurion, and numerous other soldiers. All these folks saw two human-like creatures with their heads reaching the heavens and one in the middle with his head reaching beyond. Yet there's absolutely no other record of this event. Apparently, the entirety of those who witnessed this clearly supernatural interventional spectacle from heaven just thought it best to keep it to themselves because it was more important to disenfranchise those darn Christians, I guess. I'm an atheist, and I can say with very little doubt that if I observed the events described in Peter's gospel, including the talking cross, after I changed my underwear and cleaned up, I would be instantly converted and believe in a supernatural connection to whatever the hell it was coming out of that tomb. I don't know if I'd love it, but I'd sure as hell fear it. The Gospel of Peter goes on to describe another individual coming down from heaven and entering the tomb. This was also evidently witnessed by many. Mary Magdalene and some other women friends went to the tomb to perform ceremonial duties for, quote-unquote, their loved one, and found the stone rolled away. Inside there sat the individual, the one that came down from heaven after the three others came out of the tomb, who informed the women that Jesus had risen from the dead. The writer describes what happened after by stating that the women were stricken with fear and they fled. The gospel continues, quote, 
we, the twelve disciples of the Lord, cried and mourned. Each of us, mourning for what had happened, went to his own house. But I, Simon Peter, and Andrew, my brother, took our nets and went to the sea. End quote. The text breaks off shortly following this, but it's clear that according to this gospel, the apostles weren't gathered together for Jesus to appear to them following the empty tomb, but instead went their separate ways. It also sounds like they were unaware of the resurrection at this point and were mourning for what had happened. Obviously, we don't have the entirety of this gospel, so maybe it goes on to mention some similar events, but at the very least, we can see that there are clearly facts related to additional witnesses to the resurrection. I can't help but wonder how, with so many important witnesses, this event didn't make it into the histories or texts of any other writers unassociated with Christianity from that time. It's also easy to see why this gospel, as well as many others, were left out of the New Testament. When I hear a Christian apologist state confidently that scholars agree that Jesus was crucified, that there was an empty tomb, and that there is proof that the apostles truly believed that Jesus appeared to them after his death, I can't help but wonder how they keep a straight face. I see this over and over as if it's just documented fact. Now, I don't know the religious affiliations of the scholars or anything about their upbringing or other affiliations. Therefore, I can't be clear on whether there is any possible theological reason for their scholarly work in the study of the New Testament. Are these scholars biased? I don't know their level of faith. I can say that the scarcity of the source material speaks loudly and clearly to me, and I hope to you. Our only sources for any information related to the alleged resurrection of Jesus are written by individuals who did not witness it, did not meet Jesus, most likely did not meet any of the twelve apostles, and had an agenda, the spread of their faith. The stark differences in detail in each of the resurrection stories is undeniable. I guess to best make the believer argument regarding the historicity of the resurrection, I must point out that there are also similarities in these retellings. Maybe the oft-argued insignificant factual differences in the stories should be viewed as the Gospels completing each other in order to properly portray the larger picture. I mean, it's nonsense, of course, because they were chosen, put in order, and became canon much later but I suppose that would be an argument. Next time we'll dig into more Christological arguments. Love you. Mean it.